Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here this morning as we uh, dedicate children and worship the Lord. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open up to Psalm chapter 76. And for those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you're with us wherever you are. I hope it's warm and wonderful where you are. Uh, Hey, uh, I'm excited to conclude our series on Psalms. But before I do that, if you are a child in this room and you want to go to our Grace Kids ministry, now's the time. We do family worship Sundays here. But you're welcome to go out this side of the room or that side of the room with Mr. Mitch. You guys can head down to our Grace Kids area where you'll continue learning all kinds of fun things about Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a very important question this morning. Have you ever had an experience when you've looked into a mirror and you saw something you didn't like? Am I the only one? No. Uh, yeah, you're looking at the mirror, maybe you just got out of a meeting, you go use the bathroom, and all of a sudden you're looking in the mirror like, oh, I got this thing right here in my right tooth, right? Or maybe all of a sudden you wake up one morning, there's a little more gray hair there than there was before, or maybe you're just fatter than you were before. Uh, <laughs> you're just not quite sure you like uh, what you're looking at. Mirrors are incredibly helpful at helping us identify things about ourselves that we don't like. That's about the only good purpose that a mirror serves, I think. Well, there was a famous social scientist, uh, and in 1902, his name was Charles Holton Cooley. In 1902, he published a work called Human Nature and Social Order, and he posited a theory called the looking glass self. And in that theory, what he stated is that the people in your life, when you're around them, you begin to see things about yourself reflected back to you based on how they treat you. And all of a sudden, what you perceive other people perceive about you starts to become a part of your deep identity. Let me give you a quick example of how this works. It could be that you think that you're a rather funny person. And I'm glad that you feel that way about yourself. How you arrived at that conclusion could have been that you've spent time with people, and when you tell a joke, they seem to sincerely laugh at you. And so you go, oh, I must be a pretty funny person, so I'm kind of funny. But like to get even more specifically, it could be that you believe you're a really funny person, but only when you tell dad jokes and only when it's to people who are 10 years old and under, right? And then what you realize is adults tend to think that your jokes are rather groaners. They're just like, but you've developed an identity that says kids like me because they laugh at my jokes where adults... Eh, maybe not so much, or maybe they like you, but they don't find you nearly as humorous as you believe yourself to be. And so people's reactions to you based on living life with them or being in their presence informs part of how you believe yourself, part of how you think about the true part of your identity. And the same thing is true when we spend time in the presence of God. The more time you spend in the presence of God, the more you begin to understand, you begin to perceive exactly how it is that God sees you. And when you see yourself the way God sees you, it creates a deep part of your 
identity. And as we look at Psalm 70 or Psalm 86 this morning, what you need to realize is we open God's word and you read this, you are reading a prayer of David. You see, Psalms have two different kinds of context. There's Psalms that are prayers, there's songs that David sung privately to God. Then there are songs or psalms that are meant for corporate worship, things that everybody should sing together. This psalm is one of the five psalms labeled a prayer, and it's only one of two psalms attributed that are a prayer of David. So this is a prayer of David, and this is like, this is like opening up David's prayer journal and getting some really deep insight into how he views himself in the presence of God. Right? Now, before we get into the actual psalm itself, I want to share with you information that you might not know about David. There's a lot of stuff that you may or may not know about David, but one thing that is often overlooked about King David is that he was incredibly rich. I mean super, super wealthy. When you look at the end of his life, right before he dies, he shares with his son and advisors how much money he has set aside personally for constructing the temple of the Lord. One of David's greatest desires was to build this massive, beautiful temple to God, but the Lord told him he wasn't allowed to because he was a man who had blood on his hands, and that the privilege of building the temple would go to Solomon. But what David did instead is he saved as much money as he could so that when the temple could be built, he gave it over to his son. And it's in 1 Chronicles twenty-two fourteen. you read that David had saved, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong if I don't get it right, hang on, a hundred thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver. Now, you don't know what a talent is, so I'll help you out. One talent in Hebrew antiquity was 63 and a half pounds, right? So if he had 100,000 pounds of gold, he had 6.35, or 100,000 talents of gold, he had 63.5 million pounds of gold. And he had 63.5 million pounds of silver. And if you are into gold and silver, and that's something you buy and save and you do stocks with, and you're adjusting for modern-day numbers, that is about $165 to $200 billion. David was rich. He was Elon Musk rich. If he lived today, he would have a spaceship that he would build to fly to the moon, like all the other crazy billionaires. The guy was extremely wealthy. And here's what's true about wealthy and powerful people. It's really hard to be surrounded by people when you're that wealthy and that powerful who will actually be very good feedback loops for you and give you an accurate perception of yourself. Uh, Speaking of Elon Musk, I was reading an interview from him uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, and somebody asked him what was one of the most important things that he needed in order to run his business successfully. And the thing he said that was the hardest thing to find in Institute was really good feedback loops. People who would actually be honest with you. Because when you're that wealthy and that powerful, everybody tells you what you want to hear. That's what Elon Musk said. I need good feedback loops of people who would genuinely be honest with me. Now, that is interesting that he would say that, but it's also like a theme that we see played out all throughout media and television and everything else, right? You get a really rich, snooty person, and at the end of the episode or the movie, when they get their comeuppance, what do they usually say? Do you even know who I am? I'm so powerful and I'm so important. Well, how do they come to believe that about themselves? 
because the people in their lives would reflect back to them these perceptions. So they begin to develop this identity that says, I'm a very wealthy, a very powerful, a very significant and important person. I can make all things happen according to my will because of my wealth and my power. I think it's funny if you fast forward about a thousand years to when Jesus was around teaching his disciples, what he says about wealthy and powerful people. That's Mark 10, 45. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because when you're wealthy and powerful, all of your hope, all of your dreams, all of your identity and the people surrounding you are, are enforcing that identity becomes wrapped up in your power and wealth. There are very few people in very wealthy people's and powerful people's lives that can be very directly direct and honest with them and help them understand truly how they are. Now, David, I'm certain, knew how rich and powerful he was. I know that I, that is true because if you look at David's life, he acted like a rich and powerful person. And on many occasions, he did things based out of his own wealth and out of his own power and out of his own sense of I can do whatever I want that caused us some major problems for himself and his family and the nation of Israel. So David knew exactly how wealthy and powerful and important he was. And he was probably surrounded by a number of sycophants, just like anybody who is wealthy and powerful would be. But yet there's something different about David as well. Because all of a sudden, at this point in his life, and I don't know exactly which point in his life he wrote Psalm 86, we're not actually told, but at some point in time, he developed a different understanding of himself, and it starts in Psalm chapter 86 in verse 1. I'm going to read to you from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You may not have that version. It's one that I really enjoy when I look at this psalm. And uh, just so you know, we are having trouble today with this screen, so... If you really want to see the verse, it's behind you on the back screen, but you'd have to crane your neck to see it. Uh, so we do have them, but they're behind you. So hopefully you've got eyes in the back of your head. Otherwise, open your Bible up to Psalm 86.1. Uh, and here's how it begins. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, how does a man as powerful and wealthy and as important as King David, arrive at the conclusion that a part of his identity, maybe the most important part of his identity, is that he is poor and needy. Well, he came to that conclusion because he spent time in the presence of God. Listen to Psalm 27, verse 8. David says to the Lord, You have said, Seek my face. And my heart says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. David's persistence at spending time in the presence of God allows him to see himself the way God sees him. David knew that he was a spiritual being living in a spiritual world. And in all of his great power and wealth and wisdom and importance, none of that mattered because the material cannot translate to the spiritual. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, 37. For what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You probably heard that, but a lot of us don't read the last part of that, which is this. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There is no amount of power 
or wealth or prestige. There's no amount of good works, there's no amount of clean living that you can actually take from a material world and give it to God in exchange for the redemption of your soul. You cannot heal the brokenness of the spiritual with anything material. And so David, in the presence of God, recognizes fully how spiritually bankrupt he really is. He has no personal capacity to redeem his own spiritual self, and he realizes that I am poor and needy. And a rich and powerful king who can have anything he wants this side of eternity, anything he wants in the material world, he becomes a spiritual beggar of God. And Psalm 86 is all about the things that David begins to beg God for because he can't attain it on his own. So we're going to look at the two things, the two big categories of what it is that David is begging of God. The first thing is this. David needs to experience the graciousness of God. He begs to experience the graciousness of God. Listen to Psalm 86, verses 3 through 6. He says, Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I turn to you, Lord. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive. You are rich in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer and listen to my plea for mercy. You know, to be gracious, if you're going to be gracious with somebody, it means that you are being generous with someone who is usually in a lower position than you. Now, you can be gracious with anybody, but true graciousness is when somebody is in a lower position than you, you are genuinely generous with your time, with your treasures, with your emotions, with your understanding. You have such great capacity to give to somebody something they really haven't earned and cannot pay for or do, and do not deserve. Be gracious to me, God. That's what he's asking for. In your loving kindness, pour out your forgiveness on me. Now, here's what I think is fascinating about David's request. David was a devout follower of God. There's no doubt that David kept the law of God that was given in the book of, all throughout the Pentateuch, which is the first couple books of the Bible. David had the law. David kept the law because he was a devout follower of God who loved the Lord. And because he kept the law, David was legally made right between him and God. So David already has right standing with God. He's not like a lost person deep in sin who's trying to become a found person and on a spiritual journey. David already has a strong, beautiful, full relationship with God. And because he follows the law, according to the Old Testament, he is already right with God. But yet, what does he do? He still asks for forgiveness. Because here's what is true. Just because you are made right with God doesn't mean you don't feel the weight of your sin. There is a room full of people here, and those of you who are watching online, where you are made right with God because you have a relationship with Jesus, but yet on occasion you still feel the deep weight and burden of your sin. It's almost as if there's so much a buildup of sin in your life, it starts to rob you of the joy that you have in being a follower of Jesus. I love what David asked for. He says, Lord, be faithful and forgive me. And he says, fill your servant's life with joy. Friends, one of the ways that we experience joy 
is we experience joy when we've experienced the forgiveness of God. That's where true joy comes from. But there's a lot of us who are walking around in this world. Yes, we're right with God, but there's so much burden of sin on our heart and on our mind that we stop feeling joyful. It's like being a follower of God now becomes like a burden and almost like a frustration sometimes because we just have so much caked on sin around our heart. And here's what's true about people that don't regularly confess their sin to God is that their heart becomes hard and defensive. And when your heart is hard and defensive, there's no possible way for joy to enter. So David confesses his sin. He says, God, forgive me for my sin. Be gracious to me. Forgive me. Bring joy to your servant's life. Now, there might be some of you in this room that are joyless. And the fact that you're joyless is directly correlated to our inability or unwillingness to confess the sin that is caked around our hearts and our unwillingness to believe that God has the power to set you free or to remove the burden of that sin. See, a lot of us live life, we receive God's grace, we receive forgiveness, we, we, we understand that we have it, and we go about living in such a way as we're not really empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently. We just kind of go about our life. We become a little bit different, maybe a little bit nicer, a little bit kinder, whatever. It's like small incremental steps. But yet there's other parts of our life that just get totally wrapped up or we've not yet been set free from in our life. And there's this repetitive, reoccurring sin. And when you're stuck in that space, it almost feels like there's a deep anguish and like frustration and disgust. And you're just like, ah. You know, that crying out. When David cried out to God, that's what he was sounding like. He's crying out because there's just a deep mm, stuckness in that part of your heart, you know? And so he cries out, confesses his sin, says, Lord, bring joy to my life by, forgive, by letting me experience your forgiveness. Because I think a lot of us know we're forgiven. We call out on Christ, we know we're forgiven. And maybe some of you have come to Christ in your adult years or recently when you can articulate that moment in time when for the first time you experienced the forgiveness of God. And you're like, wow, I feel set free. I feel so light. I've got joy. I've got peace. You can you remember it. But now you're at a different place. You're like, man, that feels like a long time ago. Like it's really far away. But it's actually, it's not far away. It can be very, very near to you because God promises to you that when you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive. I love what Jesus tells Peter. The night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he decided that he was going to wash his disciples' feet. And as he goes around to all the disciples, you remember Peter. Peter says, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my whole body too. Wash all of me. And Jesus says, look, Peter, for those of you who are clean, you don't need your whole body washed. You just need your feet washed because you've been walking through the dirty world. You got sin on yourself. It's a little bit of sin, but I can remove it. You're already right with me, but come to me, confess your sin, and I'll clean your feet too. I'll make you fully pure, fully clean to be in my presence. Now, at Grace Church, we practice something that is historically called threefold communion. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. I use the term long-form communion because it's a special service where we come together for about 90 minutes. And in that time, we eat a meal together, and then we go and we wash one another's feet. And if that's weird for you, it is weird, okay? 
And then you come back, you continue to fellowship, and then you sing some songs together. You worship the Lord together. Here's what is true about what happens when somebody else washes your feet. First off, it's incredibly humbling. It's like, you know, this is a part of my body that, that I don't even touch that often. Right? They're at the bottom, okay? Only when they're really dirty. Uh, and this person is caring enough for me to clean my dirty, toe-jam-filled, scuzzy feet. And I feel bad for that person. <laughs> but they do it because they love me. And here's what's true. When somebody washes your feet, there is an emotion that accompanies that, which is a deep love for that person, and also... You are filled with joy. When somebody washes your feet and serves you that humbly, it actually fills you with gratitude and joy. And so I want you to just play a mental exercise with me, okay? And some of you are like, Pastor Dan, this is too touchy-feely for me. Okay, I, I get it. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment, okay? Close your eyes. For those of you watching online, I'm not doing anything fun. You can close your eyes too. Close your eyes. And I actually want you to imagine that you're sitting across from Jesus. And he says, let me wash your feet. Confess your sin to me. I'm faithful to remove it. Let me wash your feet. And as the Lord pours the water of the Holy Spirit over your feet that cleanses you and removes it, and he brings up the towel of his faithfulness and wipes the feet away and cleans them. I want you to look into the eyes of Jesus and just be grateful for his love for you and be filled with the joy that he has the power to remove that from your life. Okay, you can open your eyes. Friends, when we confess our sin, he's faithful to forgive. When we confess our sin and we experience forgiveness, we are filled with joy. And that joy comes from experiencing the graciousness of God. He's so gracious with us. He's so understanding to us. Psalm 86, 7, David says, I call on you in the day of my distress and you will answer me. God will answer you. If you want that joy, confess God will answer you. That's what David wants, to experience God's graciousness so that his life is filled with joy. Second thing David begs of God, because he can't get it for himself, is that David begs the Lord to possess godliness. Psalm 86, verses 11 and 12. Teach me your way, Yahweh, and I will live by your truth. I love this next verse. I, lo I love this verse so much. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. You know, David has a deep desire to know the laws of God. We know that because he says, I've studied your precepts day and night, Lord. I, I know your laws. But more than your laws, he wanted to know the truth about who God is. David wanted his entire life oriented around the very character and qualities of the Lord. A life characterized by modeling the qualities of his creator. I, I, I think about this, give me an undivided mind to fear your name. What a powerful statement. Give me an undivided mind to follow you fully. He wanted to live this truth out in his life. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been around the church for a very long time, 
you've probably heard people talk about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. You might have heard that. I, I, you know, I really want to worship God, but man, my flesh is so strong right now. I got this crazy amount of stuff that's coming after me. And so I got this, this tense struggle between the flesh and between the spirit. Uh, and, and that's what we're talking about. The undivided mind is that you want to model who God is. You want to become like him in every way. You want to obey his decrees and his precepts. You want to, you want to have the very heart of God. Your, your spirit desires to do it. But there's this other part of your humanity that is like this chain that's just like holding you back. It's like, no, you don't want to do that. Like, yeah, it's not really possible. Or no, everybody's going to think you're weird or, or whatever it is. It's going to like claw onto you. That's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. In fact, the apostle Paul, he calls it a law. It's not even, it's not even a battle. It's not even a, it's a law of life. And the law is this, that when you want to do good, evil is right there with you. Listen to what he says. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. When I want to do good, evil is right there behind me. I got to tell you, do you know that the, the day of the week that I sin the most? This is a true story. It's true and sad. The day of the week that I sin the most is Sunday. It's true. I love the Lord. I serve the Lord on Sundays. I'm actively involved in people's life. I'm doing good ministry work. I believe it's good. And yet I will tell you right now that about 1230, I'm going to be hungry and grumpy and I've got five kids and I'm going to go home and something's not going to go right and I'm going to lose it. And I'm going to lose it in such a way that like my kids aren't going to be around me. My wife is going to yell at me like it's going to be 10 o'clock tonight. I'm going to be laying in bed. We're going to be sitting there arguing. with. You. I already know how this is going to go. You know why I know that's true? Because I've done it so many times before. This is the law that is at work within you, is that when you want to do good, when you want to be like the Lord, sin is right there behind you, following you, and it like begs at your heels. So yes, we want to be generous like the Lord. We want to love like Him. We want to serve others like Him. We want to be wise like Him. And yet, there's sin because we have a divided mind. We have the flesh and the spirit at work against the odds of one another. So what does David pray for? Give me an undivided mind. Oh, man. Give me an undivided mind, Lord, that I might be like you fully, fully. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I lived in Chicago, and I worked for the Pacific Garden Mission. And the Pacific Garden Mission is a large men's homeless facility. I spent three years at the Pacific Garden Mission. And one thing you learn about working with the unhoused and the homeless is that the majority of them aren't there because they're lazy. They're there because they have mental health issues. And their mental health issues are compounded usually then by the culture in which they're immersed. And there's a lot of drugs and other things that are really, it's a system keeping them impoverished and keeping them homeless. And they come to accept this whole thing as reality. And uh, when I was, I was maybe 19 years old at the time, I was talking to a young guy. And I remember his words, because this guy knew the Bible. Man, he really knew the Bible. And I would get up, and I'd preach there on Tuesdays. And at the end of my, my sermon, he'd come down and tell me everything I got wrong. And he was so right half the time, right? Uh, and so he comes up to me, and he says, Pastor, he goes, oh, man, I just love your message. He goes, i got to tell you something. He's like, I really do love Jesus. And I was like, I love Jesus too. He goes, but I love drugs. I'm like, oh. And he goes, I hate that I love drugs more then I love Jesus. And that sentence stuck inside my mind because that really is Romans 7 in a nutshell. And you can replace that with so many things as a Christian. I love Jesus, but I love making money. 
And I hate that I love making money sometimes more than I love Jesus. Or I love Jesus, but I also love prioritizing me time because I got a busy schedule. And sometimes I just hate that I love prioritizing myself over Jesus. I mean, seriously, fill in whatever that is for you because we all have it. It's all there, right? That's that divided mind. I love Jesus, but I also love blank. And sometimes I just hate that I love that more than I love Jesus. And so David reaches out and he prays for an undivided mind to fear your name, that my world would be so wrapped up in you, Lord, that I wouldn't struggle with these other things that I love or want to pursue or or, or have in my life more than you. Now, why does David want to want to be godly so bad? I think this is a motivator because we have to have motivators, okay? We're people, we need motivators. Why does, God, why does David want to want to be godly so bad? And I think this, the answer is this. When you know exactly what you have been saved from, when you know exactly how unable you are to save yourself, that is when you desire to want to serve the one who has saved you. Psalm 86, 13, David says this, Your faithful love is great. You delivered me from the depths of Sheol. David understands that without God's intervening work in his life, his soul is damned to an eternity in hell. And that is a sobering reality that we can't actually come to until we spend enough time in the presence of God to recognize how terrifying it would be to spend an eternity without him. And that's ultimately what hell is. It's, it's eternal separation from the presence of God. See, what's thing, I think it's funny that a lot of you believe, a lot of Christians, I, I know I believe this for a long time, is that if I'm not praying or in God's word, I'm not in the presence of God. Well, that's just not true. The fact that you're living in a world where there is access to God, you experience a lot of his prevenient grace in your life, even if you don't go pursuing the presence of God. But total separation and total isolation from the very presence of God, especially if you're intentional about spending time there, I actually can't think of a greater hell than that. And so David understands in the goodness and beauty of who God is and what he does, if I were to be separated from that, Lord, you have saved my life. You have brought me into something that I could not achieve of my own, and I want to want to be godly like you my entire life. Now, did David do it perfectly? No. Do we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But this is what is so true about God, and I love this for, uh, about God. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul talking to Timothy says this, If we are faithless, because we will be faithless at some point in time, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Which means every time you confess your sin, every time you call out for God's graciousness, Every time you, you beg to have an undivided mind, do you know what the answer is to every one of those prayers? Yes and amen. Because God can't deny himself. He wants those very things for you because it's a part of the nature of who he is as a deity. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to have an undivided mind. He wants you to be full of love and wisdom and compassion and grace. He wants all of that for you. And he promises if you just reach out, he'll give it to you. And it's not going to be permanent most of the time. It'll be in that moment. You know why he gives it to you momentarily? Because he wants you continually in his presence. 
so that every time you need it, you walk back into the presence of God and you request and you experience his faithfulness because it's not in his nature to deny you. Now, David makes some pretty serious requests of the Lord. Lord, give me an undivided mind. That's a big request. Lord, be gracious to me and forgive me for my sins so that I can experience joy. That's also a big request. And what do you think would motivate God to do these things for David? Psalm 86, 15. But you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious. You're slow to anger and rich in faithful, and rich in faithful love and truth. Now, when you have compassion and you have graciousness and you combine those two attributes, you know what you get? mercifulness. God in his mercy, somebody who is more powerful, more wise, more honorable, more glorified, God in all of his prestige and power, in his mercy, in his compassion and grace for you, will give you the things that you ask for that you can't possess on your own. He loves you. He recognizes your spiritual poverty. He knows it way better than you do. And when you go before him and say, Lord, I am poor and needy, he is faithful in his mercy to give you all the things you need to not be spiritually bankrupt, but to have a fulfilling and beautifully rich spiritual life. You know, Psalm 130 Verses 1 and 2, and this is how we're going to close today. This is Psalm 131 and 2. I believe, just based on some research, while we don't exactly know when Psalm 86 was, was written, I do believe that Psalm 130 was written post-Psalm 186, at some point in time later in David's life. And here's what David says in Psalm 130. And it's a result, I believe, of having his prayers answered in Psalm 86. Psalm 131 through 2. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can serve you, or so that with reverence we can serve you. If the Lord kept a record, we would be crushed. But because of his love and his mercy and his great compassion and graciousness, when we reach out and request forgiveness, he's faithful to forgive. When we reach out and request to have an undivided mind, he's faithful to empower you with his spirit in the moment to follow, love, and trust, and obey. Friends, here's what I want to leave you with. For those of you who are already right with God, you just need to let Jesus wash your feet. He's faithful to do it, and you should do it on the regular. Confess your sins daily. Let the Lord know, Lord, here's where I screwed up. Here's where I need your help today. He's faithful. But for those of you in this room who have never once come to the foot of Jesus and asked him to remove your sin and make you right with God, there is no day like today. Because we're told that Jesus is faithful. It's not in his nature to deny those who come to him and seek forgiveness. And so if you are in this room and you've been struggling or you're watching online, you've been struggling following after Jesus, or like whether or not you really want to commit to this thing wholeheartedly, he is gracious and compassionate, and he is merciful, and he loves you, and he will accept you with arms wide open and make you his very own son and his very own daughter. And for that is something he would love to do for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are spiritually poor and needy. God, we need you more than we need anything else in this entire world. There is no way 
that we can have a relationship with you, God the Father, without your Son, Jesus, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, would you empower us now with your Holy Spirit to be drawn to your presence, to seek forgiveness, that we might, Lord, have a heart filled with joy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.